0: Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com.
0: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Hello, and welcome to the show, One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the Medical Director at Westbridge, and I sit in for Mary. And today, we have as our guest, Patricia Fennell. Hi, Patricia. Hi. So, Patricia is a researcher and clinician specializing in chronic illness, trauma, forensics, and hospice care. Uh, Patricia has an organization, Albany Health Management Association, uh, associates treating and examining global healthcare concerns through clinical care, consulting, and professional education, and uses um, what Patricia calls the Fennell four-phase treatment approach, which we'll speak about in a moment. Patricia is an experienced lecturer um, internationally, um, including Africa, um, and consults with federal government management consultancies um, and the CDC. Um, and has written a uh, several publications, including the books "Managing Chronic Illness," the Four Phase Treatment Approach, and the Chronic Illness Workbook. So, welcome, Patricia. Thank you.
3: Good to be here.
2: Uh, so. Where did you uh, lecture in Africa?
3: Well, I'm about to, actually. We're going to be going in Namibia, and this is really, we're very excited about this. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to combine things I'm very passionate about. Uh, we're going to be...
2: Patricia, are you there? I think we've lost Patricia for a moment. Perhaps you'll call back in a moment. So, the whole theme—oh, this is interesting. So, the whole theme of chronic illness has been um, such a prevalent issue, and there's so many differences between acute and chronic illness. In dual disorders, we obviously have focused around a very chronic illness, um, mental illness, and addictions, both of which occur throughout the lifespan, and really need a very longitudinal approach to their care. Um, So I hope that we get Patricia back in a moment because I can't hear her or maybe that the producers at the radio show will be able to link us up together. Okay. Well, while we wait for the producers to help us out here, um, I'm going to talk about a topic close to my heart. Um, I was reading in the Boston Globe today a article about the comparators between methadone maintenance and Suboxone treatment for the treatment of opiate
0: addiction.
2: Oh, good. Well, we'll have to have my show another time. Patricia, are you back? I am back. My
3: apologies. Where I am, uh, we are having all manner of uh, weather shenanigans, and it knocked out my landline and my power, so I'm, uh, it's, a, it's a little... Uh, it's not exactly dark here, of course, but uh, I'm back.
2: Sorry about that. Well, welcome that. back. Probably not <laughs> half as many problems as they might get in Namibia while you're there. But. Exactly right. Exactly. So yeah. I
3: think I don't know where I left off. I think I was saying I was feeling really positive about going to Namibia
2: mm-hmm.
3: because we have an opportunity to combine things that are very close to my heart. On the one hand, looking at chronic illness um, diseases like uh, HIV, which is now a chronic illness in many parts of the world. We're going to be teaching the teachers there, um, helping them think about how to work with not only their own illness states, because so many of those folks are ill themselves, but also the children. Um, and so we have an opportunity there to really look at the impact of trauma, be it from illness or from violence or from poverty or from hunger, but also to look at how do we impact education, because we certainly understand that education is the best predictor of, of long-term health and the best creator of long-term health. So there's, there's a lot of pieces in there that we're really um, um, excited about. And as myself, as, as somebody who's had chronic illness since I was a kid, I just, I just really feel very passionate about um, helping folks and certainly
2: helping youngsters
3: with uh, learning how to cope with chronic disease over time.
2: Wow, what a lovely opportunity to... Um, yeah, I'm very excited. Over there. Good for you. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about what the four-phase um, treatment is, um, and, you know, because you were talking about chronic illness, but you sounded like you have a very broad perspective on the experience. Yeah,
3: we do. We do. It, let me... The, the, the four-phase, sometimes it's helpful to think about it first in terms of the four-phase model and then the treatment evolved out of that and a lot of different kinds of applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the purposes of, of, you know, anybody who's who's dealing with illness or disability in and of themselves, like people like me and easily half the U.S. population has a chronic illness, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, so lots of us, it goes like this. There are four phases. Mm-hmm. uh crisis, stabilization, resolution, and integration. I'm going to say that again, there are four phases: crisis, stabilization, resolution, and integration. Okay. And at each phase, at each phase, there are three areas that we look at. We look at the um, uh, physical domain, the physical plane on which we live, how our bodies are at each of these four phases. We then look at what people are like psychologically, spiritually, at each of these four phases. And then we look at what's going on in their social world at each of these four phases. Um, and what we have found, and there's been research done worldwide, is that most people, most of us can get stuck in a loop of phase one and phase two. We get uh, a the crisis, crisis phase happens and we stabilize maybe, we move into the second phase with either the help of you know friends and medicine and different things. But because we're talking about chronic illness and because something is, in fact, chronic, you really don't get better. It's about management. It's not about cure. So people, either because their medical model isn't really up to the challenge quite yet of chronic illness or maybe where they live in the world, they try to capture that pre-crisis life. And it helps them kind of crash again. So people kind of get caught in this loop of phase one and phase two. Now we find that with help, people can be moved into phase three and then four. And what that means is that they're not necessarily physically better, but they understand that part of being chronically ill, this is like I've come to understand it about myself, is that you go through phases of relapse and remission. It ebbs and it flows. And you learn how to manage that over time. So this basic model kind of gives us this alternative cognitive map. An alternative way to think about what it means to have an illness and not have you. So that you can integrate it and have a life, but also respect that, you know, these are the parameters within which I live over time. So when we introduce these concepts to folks, it's like, oh, there's another way to think about this. And it, it's really important because chronic conditions, be they, everything from PTSD, trauma, uh, cancers now in many cases a chronic illness, um, addiction, these are things that we have to manage throughout our lives. We don't make them go away. So out of that, Comes very specific treatment issues, treatment approaches at each of the four phases. But while I'm introducing this to folks, that's like just beginning to introduce this concept of what it means to move through these phases. And then one other thought before I forget, okay, throw in there, um, please stop me at any time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, one other thought is, you know, we thought really hard. I thought really hard about not making this a stage model, but it's a phase model because you can make your way through the phases and kind of, you know, spend some time in this kind of more of a. You're more integrated. You've got you've developed some meaning about your experience. in phase three, we can go back if you like and talk about what happens in each of the phases specifically. Um, but then life happens. You have a relapse or something else happens. I mean, just because you have one illness or you have addiction or you have cancer doesn't mean that, you know, someone close to you could pass away or there could be a car accident. So you can make your way through the phases, and we find that once people make their way through it successfully and they have that map, then when life continues to happen, they really negotiate it a lot better.
2: All right. So I can (laughs) um, hear the – I can – picture the ideas of cycles of crisis and stabilization. If we bring it to um, a common scenario with, in the dual-disordered setting, someone might have an acute psychotic phase, um, be very paranoid, um, and um, feel that um, they cannot trust their friends around them. They might um, be using many more drugs at that time um, yep. and, and isolate um, in their apartments and um, mm-hmm. Lose their, they stop working or stop going to school, and then there's a phase of stabilization, either where they adjust to a chronic level of um, psychosis and drug use, but more typically, you know that that way, that that is decreased enough to allow them to stabilize and um, be on some medications and reduce their drug use, and they have. Yeah, um,
3: if, if I if I may, just to jump in there for one second. That yeah. the way we need to think about stabilization is we're we're carving that the person is starting to carve some order out of chaos they're not really getting better but they're beginning to recognize their symptomology, they're beginning to, you know, figure out how to kind of be in this state. And where it gets tricky is when is when the person can begin to convince themselves that, oh, well, now maybe I'm better, maybe I'm cured, or the people around them want to believe they're cured. So they can go off their meds, or maybe they think they can start drinking again, or, you know, a whole variety of things can happen uh, that kind of it's, throw them
2: right back into crisis phase. All right, so I like that idea, carving order out of chaos. So there's um, still the same set of difficulties occurring, perhaps um, psychotic symptoms or drug use, yep. but there's a more of a rhythm and they feel less, um, they feel less out of control and, and carried along by that illness, but feel some recognition of some order within it and some mileposts. Um,
3: exactly. Exactly, and okay. it's interesting because we see this across diseases. We see this in our MS patients. We see it in our patients dealing with severe, with, 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 with you know, psychotic symptoms. That it's like yes, that they begin to recognize. I like your word, the signposts, the mileposts of how it works. And this is where it gets tricky because if folks then are not given these sort of additional sets, pieces of information, skills that say, okay, now this is about not cure, it's about integration. People need help getting to that third phase. And in that third phase, it's, it's a different... It's a very different position. It's a place of really recognizing, for example, that you really can't go home again. It's a genuine recognition and grieving for that pre-crisis self that you can't be that person that maybe you never were, given whatever your illness state Before is. Before we get I mean,
2: to that phase three, and we're going to be coming yeah. up for a break very soon, just want to emphasize this point. So you were saying um, that as people begin to get a little more familiar with some of that chaos and find some order within it, get a, get a, um, they become perhaps a little more... Um, become a little less scared and feeling out of control. And that's when people frequently might stop their medications um, and uh, feel that everything's okay or or good enough. And we have to be
3: really tricky about that state because folks around them can also feel like, well, maybe they're okay now. You know, maybe they don't need
2: to do whatever So that's when complacency can come. Um, come in and a yearning for the pre, maybe from here on it's just going to return to the pre-crisis um, state. They're going to, so. they're
3: going to want, and, and the culture is going to want them to be cured, they're going to want to be cured, um, and this is where it's, re- it's a very tender time for people emotionally yep. and their families and everyone around them to help them really begin to transition into this is not about... Uh, cure. It's more than management. It's about integration. I prefer the framework of integration.
2: Patricia, let's have a short break and come back in a moment.
3: Great.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 11 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Seventh Wave Network. 11 Talk Radio. Because shift happens.
4: Can you imagine a
1: technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, shamanic technologies of consciousness and success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A
0: fresh look at today's health, Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Talking with Patricia Fennell, author Hi. of *The Chronic Illness: Managing Chronic Illness: The Four-Phase Treatment Approach* and *The Chronic Illness Workbook*. Patricia, before the break, mm. you were ta- we were talking about that stabilization, that cycle of crisis and stabilization. So, common. right. Tell me about some of the psychological or spiritual aspects of that phase, that stabilization phase, where you're not—you're saying you're not really getting better, because uh, you're talking about chronic illness here, not an acute right. episode illness, right? Um, right. But you're, just, you're getting yeah, but you're getting used to um, the the people get used to anything. They can get used to the chaos. They can get used to um, the uh, the havoc of um, addiction, and and then people tend to become maybe complacent or yearn for the past, and can end up back in an acute phase, or then mm-hmm. their recovery falter. Um, what what's going on psychologically and spiritually at that point? Well, well, well. There's a couple of, there's, there's a couple of things that are going
3: on spiritually and psychologically that I can name that are very interesting. That, that um, and just to, for a brief preface, if people in the crisis phase, and, and I've actually heard folks say this, if they can say, "My God, why have you abandoned me?" People also often feel in the crisis phase like they feel godless. They, if they did have a sense of faith, it's often very shaken by the severity of what they may have gone through in the crisis phase, and so when they move into the stabilization phase, spiritually speaking, this is often a time as people are carving order out, order out of chaos. Often very attracted to, though not always, but they're often very attracted to the spirituality of their childhoods or the people that are close. And they're often attracted to a spirituality that is very structured, hierarchical. It can sometimes give them, again, this kind of framework of stability and prediction, etc. What we find that's interesting is that as people begin to move through, if they can, if they get some support into the third phase, um, and not get caught in in this loop of, relapse and remission, they begin to think about their spirituality in a broader way. They begin to think about developing meaning, about why they've suffered, what's happened. So it's not, It's in addition to what their spiritual leaders, what people outside of them might have had to say, maybe again their faith of their childhood, of someone close to them, what those faith traditions might offer them, they also then begin to think about, well, how how are... What what do they believe about their suffering? What do they believe about um, um, why this has happened to them? And what I've pretty consistently found is that if people are really going to make it into the third phase, if they're really going to start on the road toward integration, they have to develop meaning about their suffering. You know, we all have a story about our lives and what we've been through. We all have a narrative. And... um, if people don't have a good narrative or a good understanding or haven't developed one about, you know, why me? Why God? When I first started working on this 20-some-odd years ago back in my hospice years, you know, I I, I, used to, I used to jokingly call it the existential dilemma phase because this is where people would ask the real hard questions. It's like, why live? Why go through this? And as clinicians, we had to be prepared to do the emotional heavy lifting with them. Mm-hmm. To say, well, you know, if there is this much suffering, why should we? What? What's the point? What's the meaning? As people begin to develop meaning about their suffering for the time in the tunnel, um, and we bring all different kinds of creative, different processes to doing that, um, then it begins to take a certain kind of turn. Then now they're describing their illness process, spiritually and psychologically. When people are in phase in phase one, it's their position is often. You know, I've been abandoned by God, I have no control over this, I'm out of control. Hopelessness. It's absolutely. Absolutely it's a hopelessness and it's a helplessness. Yeah. And as they move through the phases, they begin to get some of their agency back. As they move into the second phase, they have this experience of again carving order out of chaos as a general framework. It's like, well, you know, I, I'm I'm this is starting to make a little sense this this more structured spiritual approach may be helping me have it make a little more sense, give us give us, but it may or may not offer the individual, it might, but it may or may not, and often doesn't, offer them quite enough in terms of, but why me? Why God? Why go through this? Why bother? Um, and in the face of terrible suffering, when people are not allowed to explore those questions, when, that, when they're not helpfully, what's the word, I, I need a word, shepherded, guided, walked, joined, Okay, yeah. accompanied, accompanied through that dark night of the soul, if you will, um, this is where you know we lose them. this is where folks it, it gets too painful. they try desperately to to, to capture that pre crisis life uh, and uh, back they you know they, they try to be who they used to be,
2: and back they go um, i think I think this is a really amazingly crucial point, part of the reason why people um, uh, yearn for that pre crisis period, is that there's a, often a sense of purpose and order. Right. Now, over a maturational right. period, a, a lifespan, that obviously uh, changes and unfolds. Right. But yeah. with a, a acute crisis tipping off a chronic illness, that's taken away and that's done the, you're forced into that situation very abruptly, and your hopes and dreams about... A, you know running the marathon if you're going to be losing a leg or um, exactly exactly right you know, suddenly all shifted and it takes an enormous um you you have to be in a lot of a hurry to come up with a different exactly goal.
3: and what's uncanny to me is you know we we worked with some folks
2: uh, involved with nine eleven
3: uh here you know here in the united states and in, in in New York and uh you know we've worked you know with folks who who have been in gangs um and in you know what it there, there is this, uh, for some people, uh, depending on what their life had been, there was this really abrupt shift of the world made sense, their spiritual order made sense, their psychological order made sense, their physical order made sense. And all their of a sudden... Of direction and purpose. Right. Yeah. Direction and yeah. purpose. It all it made sense, and then suddenly the world makes no sense. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, we've worked with folks where the world never did make sense. Right. So, so, so for them, it, it's 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 this, you know, you know, and, and I feel like I'm someone who's kind of walked between those worlds a little bit because I was, you know, I I I didn't live, you know, in uh, in uh, a war torn Africa, but I have been sick since I was a kid, so I felt like I had some understanding of trying to imagine this pre crisis life, um, and and then you know assuming that, gee, those people look like they I want that life. Well, no, so, so how do we
2: develop meaning about this set of circumstances and, and then what, begin what, to move tell forward? Tell me something about the subjective experience um, at that point. You talked about it as an ex- existential... Uh, well, it's really, fa- it's really a good, good question.
3: It's very fascinating. One of the things that we have found in the, in, in the stabilization phase, um, and by the way, most patients, if we're going to use that framework, most folks present to us, Either in crisis or stabilization. By the time folks get to the resolution phase, they don't need to talk to us too much anymore. I mean, that you know, folks I've worked with from time to time, they call me up or something changes or whatever. But it's interesting what happens in the stabilization phase. In addition to carving order out of crisis, one of the really big uh, objective, subjective, objective, real world things is that people seek others of like kind so whether it is twelve-step or whether it is a cancer survivor group or whether it is a gang in south central people will seek others firemen from nine eleven they will seek others who have shared this experience because they're the only folks that they experience who understand their crisis experience now the good news and the bad news is is that this really helps people carve order of chaos that's the good news. The bad news is, is that not all gangs are created equal, and what the gangs ask you to do or what they teach you may or may not be the best skill sets uh, or the best kind of information. At least in my judgment, but uh, that that's a very crucial, consistent thing we see across disease or christianity see across culture that people seek others of like kind, and that is one of the places where they also find some of their spiritual
2: footing. Right. So. That you're also talking about a cultural competency here, yeah. Um, And I I would imagine this will be very interesting when you're going to Namibia, um, because you're you're helping people locate their meaning um, within their cultural context. It's vastly different for someone in the in a gang than it will be for someone on. Park Avenue and someone from Nibbett. You in betcha. Yeah, it's really,
3: you know, when 9 11 when, when happened, um, several of my, and in our group, and, and our clients who were uh, 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 either uh, either black folks or uh, Latinos, Latinas, several of those folks said to me, the world wasn't safe before. What are all these people talking about?
2: Yeah. yeah.
3: So, I mean, and that's contextualized right here in New York City. So, I mean, you know, there's that, let alone these huge cultural gaps of, you know, what do we as Americans think of as what's healthy? You know, it's interesting to be going to to, to think, I just lectured about a month ago uh, for an education conference on chronic illness and kids and addictions that are done in New Orleans. And one of the things that I really like to do is, and we blogged about this on our website, is... Um, we go up to the concierge, and I say to the concierge, listen, who can take us out for a tour of the town? And I don't I don't want to see where all the rich people live. I want to see where everybody lives and where they really eat and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so she called her dad. And her dad came over and took us on a four-hour tour. We piled into his truck, and we went down into the um, Ninth Ward. Mm-hmm. And we saw it. We saw everything. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it was a really interesting experience of trying to close this gap between, you know, I go there and talk to other, you know, people who are fortunate enough to have gone to graduate school, mm-hmm. but how do we bring that back down to the experience of folks who, in the context, this is where Katrina happened. I'm looking at where they live. They take me to their school, Martin Luther King School. They take me to their home, and it's it's like, so, so how is it for you guys here now? Well, you know, how is this translated? Uh, you know, I get on the tourist, and I help in that way, but can I be more than an educational or clinical tourist? What can I bring back to you? Mm-hmm. So, you know, how can I help? Uh,
2: but, but also educate me. I, you know, who says I understand what's going on? So, Part of the process that you enter into in groups or with patients is really helping. It's really with that receptive ear and listening to them and saying, look, educate me. You help Absolutely. create that meaning for them. Um, and you sound very receptive and um, just allow yourself really to allow that uh, meaning to emerge. Yes. Yep. Well, let's let's have a short break and come back in a moment.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network.
2: Um, standing in for Mary and with Patricia Fennell. Um, Hi. Talk- Hi. So Patricia, you know, you've been yes. talking about um, you know people really taking a um, passing through a phase uh, with their, in relationship with their chronic illness. Yeah. Um, you know, entering into a period really where they not only develop a degree of acceptance um, and um, management, but then. Um, Begin to stitch together a narrative of their life with the illness uh, within right. it, um, right. and and it requires a great shift of identity, but also a, a shift of from helplessness to one of autonomy. Which, right. um, but not a battle against the illness, but a relationship with the illness, right? And, and I think
3: I think, think that you, you you frame that really well. And to piggyback on that, that if we think again about the stabilization phase, the second phase, and people are carving order out of chaos, and they're starting to associate with people of like kind. Mm -hmm. What starts to happen is people begin to develop new norms and new values about what it means to be at this phase of illness. Now, if, excuse me, if they find the right people, I don't care if it's their friend, their social worker, their doctor, their rabbi, their minister, their priest, whomever, but people who begin to, to help them move into this third phase of resolution and development of meaning, part of what that requires between phase two and phase three is new norms, new values, new attitudes that really fit a framework of understanding that I can't be who I used to be. I can't go home again. Mm -hmm. So who is this new person? And part of where we really work with, uh, from an intervention perspective, is helping them learn how to, if you will, observe, collect data, really look at their position differently, and also um, teach them different pieces of skills about what it means to integrate, not try to recapture that pre-crisis life. So a whole lot of work can begins to happen at the sort of end of phase two, moving someone into phase three.
2: It's very interesting, um, you know. I want to ask you a bit more about that, but yes. there's been something on my mind. Yes. How now? There's a a lot of a lot of therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about use a very strong medical model, and yes. say um, you have a disease, um, yes. and um, you know, the, say depression, chronic yep. depression, or something. Yeah. And yep. Um, this is something which has you know, which is Sort of external, an exer- external beast which has um, attacked you, and um, and the same model with addictions in some way. There's a degree of um, powerlessness, um, uh-huh. which is which is described, um, and some people talk about how that. Um, Diminishes that sense of autonomy in some mm-hmm. ways, and I wondered what your thoughts were about this. Because, oh, absolutely!
3: Yeah. I, I thank you. That you know, I, I think we um, all sort of arrive with a certain set of skills. Uh, be they uh, actually, my 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 grandmother, uh, who would if she were still alive, would be a Victorian, and she gave me these gr- this great language that I try to use, like you know, do you have a hearty constitution? For example, and so even stepping outside of the medical framework, that there are those who can run fast and those who can't. Now, at such at some point, those who run real fast might be considered an athlete material, and those who can't run fast at all might be considered disabled. But on any given variable, if you will, we all have a, have capacities, and we all have we all have functional capacities. We all have limits. We all have disabilities, ability, whatever the language de jour is. But at the end of the day, I mean, I've needed glasses since I was a kid. I'm blind as a bat. So, I mean, you know, that, 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 is that a disease? Well, I suppose it is. So, so these are limitations or levels of capacity within which I have to discover about myself that change over time, that change as my own diseases change, and it's not one chronic disease per customer. Um, everybody's going to have more than a few by the time they're forty-five or fifty, mm-hmm. um, and, and so then how do we integrate them and adjust to them, as we continue to function as a worker, function as a friend, function as a family member? So it is to me, and I'm not quite sure I'm answering your question. So please stop me. But, so, but well, I tell you, the,
2: my my interest was my my question was about whether you find that that disease model which mm. um, has been used so much in the medical, traditional oh, medical I, yeah, treatment yeah, yeah. Of, of many chronic diseases, has been, yeah. is useful or can serve as an obstacle to, to some people. Well,
3: I, I think, you know, it, that's an interesting double-edged sword. I think um, for a long time, I think, you know, I, I like to think of it that about 500 years ago, Descartes made this deal with the church and uh uh, psyche and spirit got from the neck up and mm-hmm. science got from the neck down, so to speak, yeah, and yeah. what was uh, observable and what was measurable and what was physical, what was material, uh, what was corporal, the body, which we could touch and feel, that was real. Yeah. And that's science. And then anything from the neck up, well, that's Spiritual—that's self-report. That's qualitative. That's not quantitative. That's psychological. That's a little hocus-pocus. We're a little bit more more suspect of our psychological or spiritual frameworks. You know, for, for a true, uh, uh, shall we say, Western scientist thinker. So on the one hand, I think that scientific medical model framework has served us well in terms of saying, look, there's some real physical things that are going on with people here, some of which we can observe, some of which we can't, some of which we can get some good data on, some of which we can't, but there's something, there's something literal, physical uh, here that, that we need to take it into that realm and move it out of the realm of the psychologic, because when the Church got from the neck up, so to speak, not only was it given a framework of what was psychologic, at that point psychologic didn't exist, it was seen as characterological. And certainly in the arena, and I'm, I'm, as you know better than I, certainly in the arena of addictions, the assumption for a very long time is that if people were addicted, they were characterologically failing. But that's also been true in, throughout time from uh, prior a medical model framework of seeing the, the disabled as being marked by God in a negative way.
2: Yeah, and I think so I, that was a, a crucial point for the treatment of depression, say, as well. Yeah. Um, it was thought to be a, you know, people feel it as an internal deficit, a failing of, the, uh, of their personality right. and character. Right. And that externalization can help so much. But you're talking about a richer, a, a later phase of management right. or, or relationship it, where you deepen it. deepen it and integrate it into your life more
3: right exactly and interestingly is that you know and as the culture changes its mind about certain ide- certain diseases i mean a few years ago if you were diabetic and somewhat obese it was seen as purely physiological and something that had to be managed now with what's happening with obesity and diabetes in our culture and it, it, it's beginning to be viewed as characterological that people may be failing by allowing themselves to, to gain weight and uh, and it's perceived as allowing to It is an
2: interesting shift. Yeah, I've noticed yes, that. It's a
3: very interesting shift. It can yes. go in a whole variety of directions for economic and cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I think the medical model serves, but I think it serves to a point.
2: Yes. So you were talking earlier about uh, that in that phase of resolution and mm. integration, you help people observe and collect data and develop some skills to integrate rather than capture their illness. Um, what do you mean by that? How do you go about doing doing this?
3: Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, 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 the work really sort of starts as they're stabilizing in phase two, and if if we can get our hot little hands on them, we begin to to if we can get them to sort of. Uh, you know, tolerate the, uh, the ambiguity that they're experiencing, uh, tolerate the fact that they can't go home again. We begin to teach them how to observe, and this is part of where the workbook comes in and all these different exercises that we've developed for folks. And, and, and we frame it as a workbook and we frame it as exercises and, you know, but I really think about helping people become, uh, uh, ju- you know, sort of like lay scientists. And it's like helping them learn about how to observe what they can do, how to juxtapose their energy levels and their activity levels and what activities from different activity groupings. Um, And we try to really take it out of either cultural euphemistic frameworks or medical frameworks so that they can really look at how they think, how they feel, how they move through the world um, as they're actually engaging in different activities. And we help them begin to recalibrate those.
2: So instead of making, so you question some of their assumptions about what they can and can't do, um, and ask them to really directly observe what is it that you can and can't do, and how, and it, what's getting in your way—is it fear? Is it belief? Um, and begin to challenge. Or, or, or,
3: you know, here, here's when you talk about the medical model. Here's a perfect example. One of the things that we look at when I've worked with you know physicians in different in different uh, 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 diagnostic grouping, different. Di- When people are in the crisis phase and they seek medical care, they're often given an awful lot of interventions. And you can just... Absolutely. Absolutely. They're given an awful lot of interventions in what I perceive as, craze, as phase one, the crisis phase. When I talk with, with clinicians, I try to say we need to match interventions to phase. Because if you give people all this work to do, no, we could choose diabetes, just we can go back to diabetes or MS or whatever, but if you're saying to people, you're going to change your diet, you have to go to rehab, you have to do this, you have to do this, 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 and this, um, they're not going to do it because they can't. They cannot possibly accomplish it all. If they couldn't accomplish it before the crisis phase, they certainly can't accomplish it now. I'm not even going to talk about how they're going to pay for it. So, so they're they're going to try to do that, and thus we're setting the patients up to some extent from the beginning to be non-compliant, to use that fun term, um, that, that, that that they're going to fail.
2: So, part of give me give me an example of that, example that because that. we tend to think more in. Uh, with motivational interviewing and stages of change around motivation in perhaps in addictions, but you're you're giving a different perspective on that. So can you well, can you give us an example?
3: Yes. So so let's say we have someone. Do you mind if I stay with the diabetic example, or should that's we do, fine with me? Okay. The, okay. So we say we have somebody who has uh, launched into some a uh, pretty severe um, uh, uh, diabetes. And now they are uh, pretty brittle, and uh, meaning that they are uh, having a lot of different symptoms, and they're really at risk. I, as a matter of fact, I can picture someone right now who I'm working with, a young a woman in her late twenties. And so, um, when this has been a rather sudden onset for her, and it could have been gradual, but sudden just to make the more dramatic case. So she's been she's been told that she has to. Uh, stick her finger several times a day, she has to learn how to give herself injections, she has to change her diet, she has to change how she sleeps, she can no longer, they don't want her drinking. There's all these different physical management, diet, body, lifestyle, in addition to the actual ingestion of medication. And... The numbers of changes that are expected of her and how long she's supposed to maintain that without, say, failing, um, is she's absolutely overwhelmed.
2: I can by, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. So, so that would require a degree of acceptance and um, resolve um, to be able to make those changes and stitch them into your life. But you're saying exactly earlier.
3: Yes, Yes. and in fact, it it requires exactly what you said and resolve on the part of the clinicians having an understanding that they're now dealing with somebody with a chronic disease and they're not going to get better.
2: Right, and And instead, someone needs to be saying, you have to be partnering with them around forming some order within the chaos and just taking a few mileposts with them um, to begin to... Right, to and that, that relapse is
3: to be expected within chronic illness. And when it happens, you can't treat them like it's the new brand new crisis phase every single time. They'll never move forward.
2: Okay, let's take a short break and come back.
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio, feed the mind, embrace positively, release the tension,
3: your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
2: today with Patricia Fennell and Patricia let's just start with um, where we should finish but if people want more information um, about what you're doing and your the model that you're discussing um, where can they look okay they
3: should go to albanyhealthmanagement.com yeah albanyhealthmanagement.com all spelled out and on there is just a uh, a whole menu of the events that we're going to be doing. We're going to be speaking in Africa. We're going to be speaking at Oxford. I'm going to be speaking at Oxford in the fall. We're going to be out in uh, Seattle, Washington, I think in July. We're going to be different places, in different contexts talking about chronic illness. We have a new edition of our workbook coming out. We have a book we're starting to work on for Columbia Press for, for teachers on um, understanding chronic illness. Um, so if they go to albanyhealthmanagement.com, they, they can click on all sorts of things and see where we're going to be and what we're doing, and we blog and we do webinars and all manner of things.
2: Fantastic. Okay, thank you. Um, and your um, books include the Chronic Illness Workbook, the Handbook of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, and Managing Chronic Illness for now. Yes. yes okay, yes. so um, let's get back to uh, this idea of um, resolution and integration in your life yeah you know, one of the struggles which we have is that we desperately want to just get this behind us. Yes. And, and as you're going, as you go through a phase where you're feeling a bit better, there's this hope, oh, you know, maybe this time it's going to be gone. And it's an it's a intoxicating hope that is kind of scary in the same, same time because um, you kind of know the cycle um, and um, don't want to get your hopes up. Yeah. Um, so yep. yep. How do you help people, you know, understand that difference and Well, that, and and that, make that that's shift.
3: thank you. That that's that's like spot on. You know, it's so tricky. Different things have helped me understand this in my own life, which like my hospice work years ago, that that, you know, we live in this interesting tension of on the one hand, um and i'll use myself as an example again if that's okay but living in this in this in this interesting tension on the one hand of you know i've been diagnosed with lupus since i was a kid okay mm-hmm. so it ebbs and flows it comes and goes i will go through these periods of thinking man you know i think i'm really better you know maybe this is over and then uh oh it's clearly not over and then with that is part of what i came to recognize is that the grief that i would experience with any relapse with any you know loss of remission or ability was not failure on my part that it was in fact part of this cycle of what's life It was the night and the day it was the, it was the coming and the going and so the more that I stopped seeing this as failure and start seeing as how it goes, the freer I was to begin to embrace other things to begin to really move into this more of a framework of um, resolution and develop meaning about it, and then also a larger integration. When some folks have done some research, different folks, one group of folks on the phase model, one of the, the groups came back and said, you know, it, you know, they had assumed, they'd hoped, that as patients moved through the model and they got to phase three, they would be also be physically better. But they yeah. weren't physically better. Right. They were, but they they were psychologically better. And part of what I pointed out to them is that I never claimed that it was going to cure people physically. It, what, what we were hoping to do was get them to a different place of it emotionally, spiritually, psychologically.
2: Um, so I Although I would also also uh, on a on a side note say that there is evidence of um, improvement in physical health um, when the the um, when helplessness and um, anxiety um, gives way to empowerment Absolutely. and autonomy, yeah,
3: yeah, and, and there's no question that the more we learn how to integrate the illness in our lives, the more that the more I know what I can't do, the more I know what I can do. Right. And even though looking at what I can't do is painful for me, ultimately I have much more joy in my life because I I'm not making the same. Limit. I'm not making the same mistake about what I hope I can do, but I can't over and over again. Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm.
2: So how long do you work with people um, you know, to make these very profound changes in their relationship with their illness? Or do you well, tend to work more with the physicians and treaters to help them understand people's flow through this? Well, we
3: work with everybody. I was supervising somebody earlier today. You know, it's, it, it, and it also depends on what part of your world you're in. You know, I have, I had colleagues in Belgium, and they found that people were in the crisis phase a much shorter time than people here in the U.S. So, you know, some of it has to do with a lot of, you know, we've talked about the, the physical and the psychological and also the social domain in each of the phases, and what kind of support they have, how culturally supportive they're, where they live, The medical community, the insurance community—all those things make a big difference in terms of the kind of struggle people have to get through just to get services, which stand in the way of being able to move out of crisis and begin to stabilize. But typically, um, uh, you know, people work with me initially quite a bit, and we come at it with two ways. We come at it. There's the psycho psychological treatment part of it, but there's also case management, straight up old fashioned. Teach them how to collect. Information about themselves, help them develop a strategy about coping over time. Um, therapy is kind of the tactics, uh, but the overall arc of the phases is kind of a strategy model. And you can do different kinds of therapies within it at different phases.
2: You know, we um, are running out of time, but you did want to say a few words about illness as a, as a traumatic experience and, and the relationship between. Um trauma and violence and this. I don't know if you can speak to that. No, let, let me see if I
3: can pick up that thread. That, I guess a couple things I, I'd like to say is, one, is that illness can be traumatic in and of itself. The illness experience, whether it's with the psychological trauma, whether it's uh, uh, the, 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 the trauma of cancer, it, 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 illness disability is traumatic in and of itself. Regardless of someone's history, regardless of what's going on at the same time in their life, what we might think of clinically as pre and comorbidity, you know those those issues illness is traumatic in and of itself, And, and there is, is as clinicians sometimes. we need to think about that
2: and treatment can be too
3: and no, absolutely no question about it, and if you're chronically ill, you have multiple opportunities to interact with the healthcare system and be nitrogenically traumatized <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, it, so that's certainly one thought. And another thought is, is, to, is to help care providers. You know, as I was trained coming up, um, the, the model, the medical model is an acute care model, and we live now in a chronic illness world. And so how do we begin to shift our own thinking from, from, a, from an acute paradigm where people are either alive or well uh, they, they were the sick or dead, you know, like, that, that now people are alive with all manner of chronic conditions for, for much longer periods of time, especially in first world. So how do we think about that as, as providers and as, as, as individuals to think about over time that you can absolutely find a way to have a
2: whole life um, you know, as one person? It's interesting because there has been this development, although thinking back before Um, the most modern era of medicine, and Mm -hmm. thinking internationally, um, chronic illness has been the way, and integration in people's life and within their society and families um, has probably always needed to incorporate chronicity and living with illness. Right.
3: Well, and see, one of the differences that makes it complicated is we are really the first generation of humanity to live this long. The average lifespan where I live right now, 1922 was 53 years, and now it's like 80. And that's not evolution. That's public health. That's yeah. antibiotics. Right. My appendix burst when I was in my 20s. I'm talking to you now because of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So we have this whole group of people, certainly first world, who are with us who simply wouldn't have been two generations ago. So it's a, it's a brave new world of uh, managing chronicity.
2: Patricia Finell, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, your work sounds excellent, and you're obviously you've thought very deeply and lived it, and um, obviously a very experienced clinician and teacher. So, AlbanyHealthManagement.com will give um, our listeners a great deal more information and um, resources. And thanks again.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It was great fun.